Welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast. My name is Anthony Oliver and I'm going to lead today's discussion as we talk about managing complexity and risk on major projects. Now, the UK design and construction sector has for too long been dogged by failure to properly understand and manage risk and complexity. It was a point emphasised recently by Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, who told a gathering of MPs and engineering professionals that the UK had, and I quote, lost our way in our ability to deliver big projects at pace. So what's going wrong? What has to change to ensure that public money is spent effectively to deliver value outcomes? Now, to discuss this issue, my guest today is Mark Thurston, Chief Executive of HS2, and as the man in charge of the multi-billion pound investment programme to increase rail capacity between London and Birmingham, and then on to Manchester and the North, he is well-placed to give a view. Mark, welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast. Thanks, Anthony, and thanks for having me. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, understanding complexity and risk. I mentioned Jeremy Hunt's recent characterisation of the sector. I mean, he added, we take far too long. I mean, is he right? And if so, what are we still doing wrong? Yeah, I'm not sure we're doing anything wrong. I do think something like HS2, we need to consider the landscape, not just physical, but also sort of environmental and legislative landscape in which we are operating. We have some fairly strict planning and environmental legislation in this country, which inevitably requires projects like HS2 and Hinkley or Lower Thames Crossing or even the Olympics back in its day uh, and Crossrail through London. It requires us to consent and get you know, local support for these projects. But of course, in our case, you know, it, this is a, is a linear project, goes through 58 local authorities, 75 parliamentary constituencies. We think this, we estimate there's somewhere around two to two and a half million people will, will live within a few miles of, of the route. So, and of course, some of it's rural, some of it's urban, uh, across best part of 200 miles of our country. And we haven't done anything on this scale, certainly, in living memory. So uh, we're certainly going where we can as fast as we can. But nevertheless, there are several hurdles we've had to get to, really, until we can get in the ground and start building. Interestingly, in his comments um, came at an event where he largely praised the sector. And in fact, he underlined the need for investment in not only projects like HS2, but he also referenced HS3, HS4, HS5. I'm not sure whether they're on your radar, Mark, at this moment, but you know, maybe, maybe in a moment. But you know, given this clear commitment to investment, I mean, how damaging is this industry's continued failure to, as he puts it, deliver at pace? Yeah, I, I think the word failure is a little bit unfair. There's lots of areas you can point to in infrastructure where projects have been a huge success. I mean, I think a lot of the upfront, and, and, I, and I, I can see it from a politician's perspective, a lot of the upfront processes and time to get to a point of consent and get into the ground and start building um, will be a frustration. And obviously this, if you think about, we've now got our third bill in the House, you know, those bills have each taken about three years. I mean, we've got better at preparing and taking the bills through the select committee process and dealing with the petitions. But, but three years just to go from submitting a bill to getting it out the other side and getting an act under which we build. And of course, there's probably best part of two to three years in advance of that to prepare the bill, thousands of pages on the environmental statements. So, you know, I, I think failure is a bit unfair. I mean, clearly Crossrail has coloured a lot of judgment because it looked like it was ready and then it wasn't. And it's cost a lot of money uh, and taken some time to get the railway open. But if you stand back and say, would you consider Crossrail a failure or a success. If you've travelled on the Elizabeth Line and you're a commuter, you would say it would transform your journey if you live you know, east and west of London and want to get across the city centre uh, in, a, in a much more modern, you know, digital 
uh, way compared to what you've probably been used to. So I think this whole debate of what is failure and success in itself is an interesting discussion. Well, let's talk about the HS2 project now. Um, I mean, despite may, uh, constant media talk for changes to the plan, you know, phase one, London to Birmingham, phase 2A to crew, you know, are firmly up and running. I mean, give us a brief progress update. I'll get stuck into some of the numbers in a minute, but, you know, how are you getting on? You know, what are your latest milestones? Yeah, we, we, we've, we've, despite some headwinds, particularly sort of COVID and other factors more in the last year with some of the issues in the, in the region around energy on the back of the Ukraine war, despite some of those headwinds, we've actually got fantastic momentum. We've got 10 tunnel drives to do in total and five of those are well on their way. We've even finished one tunnel uh, in uh, a place called Long Ishington, just south of Leamington Spa. Uh, the longest railway bridge and the, across the Colne Valley is well underway. A lot of the foundations are now almost complete uh, and you'll see that start to sort of shape the skyline there. If you were to go to all four stations, work is progressed. Old Oak Common in West London is most advanced. The platform is ready for the contractor to arrive this year at Curzon Street in Birmingham and both the sites are interchanging Euston are taking shape. As you said, we've got Royal Ascent for Phase 2A uh, a couple of years ago now and we're starting and are well on the way with some of the early land acquisition and enabling works and good news just since we've got back from christmas this year this year the select committee for the phase 2b bill so that completes the route from crew into manchester that's now sitting uh, and they will start hearing petitions soon so you know on, on all three fronts uh, recognizing they're separated by both time and geography we're making good strides uh, we've contracted somewhere in excess of 20 billion pounds worth of work into the uk economy now uh, 30,000 jobs have been created. We've got about 30,000 people right across the country working. Pleasing for me, knowing my background is that over a 1,000 of those are apprenticeship starts. And knowing that our SMEs are the lifeblood of our economy, what's really pleasing that of the sort of 2,500 businesses that have worked on HS2, in excess of 70% of those are small and medium-sized companies. So, uh, And of course, if you look at what's happening in the Midlands, we often talk about this project being a project to help level up, level up our economy. You know, a third of that workforce I referred to is in the Midlands, and you're seeing investment from big corporates, land developers into Birmingham, the wider West Midlands area now, uh, to in the advent of HS2, which is still some years away from being completed. So you know, on many fronts, we, we've got great momentum. And, and the other sort of final point, Anthony, is uh, we talk about a green corridor. I mean, I think what HS2 will do will redefine how we bring the built environment alongside the natural environment. We've planted about 800,000 trees and bushes to date. Uh, We've set a target of over 7 million. Uh, And again, I think when the railway is finally complete and open between London and Birmingham, it will be very sympathetic to the natural environment. In some places, frankly, you'll hardly know it's there. So, you know, on all fronts, uh, lots going on. Well, well, that is great to hear because it's interesting because in many you speak to many people and they think that the debate is still about whether or not it should happen at all. And of course, you know, you're spending billions uh, on a on a weekly basis there. So uh, uh, great to see that progress being made. Uh, let's talk about the numbers. I mean, I think the funding envelope for phase one is forty four point six billion, and that includes a nine point six billion uh, contingency for managing risk and uncertainties. And phase two is, I think, between five point two and seven point two billion. I mean, are these figures still correct? You know, are you on schedule to finish on time and to budget? Yeah, well, I think we need to take the two phases differently because phase one is about 40% complete. So it's making, you know, it's much further ahead uh, than phase 2A, which was the smaller set of numbers you referred to. 
Well, look, two things. One is we are, uh, for phase one, we are still well within the uh, range that we, we've committed to on schedule. We, you know, r- r- rightly so, we gave ourselves a bit of flexibility on the on the opening date between 29 and 2033 20, uh, because there's lots to do and we are still well within that range. So I'm confident on schedule. I mean, on costs, you know, the inflationary environment is clearly uh, and is having an impact. I mean, you have to remember we set that budget you referred to of 44.6 back at the end of 2019. So A, that's in 2019 money. Uh, and of course, we operate in cash of the day. And of course, the world has changed a lot since then, with, whether it's the pandemic, we've left the European Union, we're now dealing with you know, what's been an energy crisis, which is starting to ease, but nevertheless has been very impactful over the last 12 months. So of course, there's a lot of work going on inside the organisation and with the department and Treasury in finding ways of, of, of offsetting some of these cost pressures. So it sounds like um, that that contingency is certainly going to be a very big part of the of, of the plan. Um, I mean, let's unpack the 9.6 billion in your budget for managing risk and uncertainties. I mean, your website says, I mean, the quote says, you know, uncertainties are an inherent part of delivering major projects. I mean, so how do you manage that? I mean, first, you know, how do you agree the number of 9.6 billion? And second, you know, is successful management of risk about spending that contingency or being able to avoid using it well I, I think it's all those things it's a very uh, this this is a complicated subject in its own right so to try to try and do this justice for your for your listeners um i mean a couple of things one is we with the base estimate for the scheme we we benchmarked at the time we had some good data from high speed one uh, and other projects where we were able to say that actually the core estimate of, of 35 billion if you do the maths uh, was was a robust number based on what we knew at that time uh, and then, as you say, we, we model the risk in, it, in its totality. Uh, and again, there are lots of benchmarks we can use. We worked with the Said Business School at Oxford. Their major projects group has sort of looked at benchmarks of risk and contingency of different projects of different scale and complexity. Uh, and again, you look at how much have you spent? What's the cost to go? What is that percentage of risk and contingency on the cost to go? Um, and, and eventually using sort of... Uh, forecasting techniques with with uh, ourselves the government uh, and and Oxford we were able to get to a point where you know we set a funding envelope uh, but under, let's be under no illusion uh, that uh, was set at what we called the the, the probability the 50 percent probability mark uh, so those who are listening and understand the uh, the nuances of sort of p50 and p80 risk provisions uh, we pitched at the p50 so it was quite aggressive. And of course, what that then did is drive us to sort of say, what are the risks to, to delivery and what are we doing? What are the man- active management plans we're putting in place to really uh, manage those risks, minimise that spend? Because the reality is, as much as you can sort of do a desktop exercise to determine what that contingency should be, of course, in- inevitably, history tells us when it, it doesn't survive contact with the enemy, when you hit real life. And of course, as I said, you know, whether it be COVID, Brexit, we've had you know, a huge amount of issues with protesters, most of which, mm-hmm. pleasingly, are behind us now. So we've, we've had to absorb some risks we didn't see coming. And of course, other risks have not maybe played out as well as we would have liked. So, you know, it's an active process within the organisation, as you'd expect. But also the other point is, as we start to bring contractors on board and we start to work through the scope, we can retire some risks. So, for example, we uh, knew that the enabling works were going to be a big part of our cost exposure early on. But they're virtually complete now. We can retire some of the risks around that 
uh, the land and property and all the land acquisition actually has gone very well. And broadly, that's playing into what we thought it would cost. Uh, but of course, now we're building, we're right in the sort of thick of the white hot phase of civil engineering. Uh, and uh, when you're trying to deliver effectively sort of 16 billion pounds worth of a roadway between London and Birmingham, right, yeah. we're into some uncharted territory there, whether it's archaeology, ecology or whatever. So you know, there's a lot still to go at, but that's the job of the company uh, and we're well on with it. You know, you mentioned the the, you know, the opening dates. I mean, already the opening dates have been have, have been pushed back. Um, you know, that's is that an, an inevitable consequence of managing those risks? Is that the way you balance you know the 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 numbers with you know the, the finances with the opening date? Well, we look. I mean, just to be clear, we, we set that twenty nine to thirty three range when we when we reset the project at the beginning of twenty twenty. As I say, we we can we are consistently and stay within that range comfortably within that range. So I'm quite confident there. But of course, to your question, you know, the, the, the sort of the cheapest way to do this project comes right back to the Chancellor's statement is to do it fast. The quicker we get done and finished and out, of course, the cheaper it will be. And the opposite sort of applies. So if it takes right. too long, inevitably, um, you know, all the management costs, all the overhead costs, all the contractors' prelims um, will sort of continue to move to the right. So you're balancing constantly, and we do this you know, at the contract level, we do a project level, we do at the overall sort of phase level. And actually, we're looking at the whole enterprise level with the whole of HS2, with all three phases. We're constantly looking at, are we managing those risks? Are we trading the cost of mitigating those risks with the benefits that it would mean, particularly to the outturn cost and schedule? Okay, and, and we've probably also all read about, uh, you know, the project's undergoing a number of reviews by yourselves and DFT, you know, Project Silverlight, Operation Blue Diamond, which could see changes to the scope. But we've, we've also seen a massive hike in, in inflation, which you also mentioned at the top. I mean, how is that affecting your ability to deliver to scope and to time uh, and to budget? Yeah, it's a challenging and no one would be surprised if I said that. I mean, we've all seen it in our own sort of personal lives, just the impact of inflation, whether it's on our shopping, the petrol we put into our cars or or our own sort of home uh, energy bills. And of course, you know, the energy we're drawing uh, on HS2 alone uh, is significant for those tunneling machines as a case in point. So the challenge for us and, and and what Project Silverlight is trying to do is sort of look at all of what's still to be done on the phase one of HS2 to uh, and based on where where we forecast that outturn to go with the best information we have today on inflation is what do we need to do to make this a project rightly so because it's public money as affordable as affordable as it can be um, and and there's lots of work in train on that clearly you made some reference to scope there are some quite big policy choices that government could make that's ultimately for them to call but the, the work that we're doing inside the organization is how do we make the project more efficient how can we find smarter ways of delivering so as you can imagine in in the current climate which is giving us significant pressures and, and i saw something only last week about how hinkley point c has now sort of reset its budget based on june 22 prices because it's brought its budget up to date to reflect that inflationary pressure um, you know we're leaving no stone unturned so but just for the record you haven't canned euston station yet no, I mean, the Chancellor came out, and rightly so, it's inconceivable, I agree with him, that uh, you would not bring this high-speed railway into the city centre. I mean, if you look around the world and where high-speed rail has transformed economies, it's because exactly that, they run city to city. That's how you get people out of aeroplanes and out of their cars, because they can go into you know, London, the centre of Birmingham, or the centre of Manchester, and do that journey either you know, within, depending on what one is, 45 minutes to Birmingham and, and frankly just over an hour to Manchester and that will transform 
the way people travel around our country in the future. And the idea that we detrain people at Old Oak Common and they have to change onto another part of the system to get into the centre of London, frankly, is preposterous. You know, we've got to remind people, it was always our intent to open the railway from Old Oak Common to Curzon Hoots to start with. That was always the plan. And then we bring Euston on stream later, and that's still the plan we're working to. And Leeds? You still want to go to Leeds? Well, you mentioned it in your earlier question. The Eastern Leg is a separate part of the project. The government made a decision uh, a couple of years ago not to take the railway into Leeds. We have been looking with the department at what it means to take the railway into the East Midlands. Uh, and then ultimately from there, there's, I think, a sort of political amp- appetite in due course to be able to route high-speed trains on the existing network all the way into Leeds. But I think, frankly, uh, you know, that's more in the space for the department to ultimately decide with ministers. My focus and our focus is making a success of the section between London, the Midlands and the North West. OK, well, let's talk about you. Let's talk a bit more about you. You've been in major project sector pretty much all your career. You've worked on various capacities in, in uh, uh, on Crossrail, Tideway, London 2012 programme. I mean, to what extent is HS2 simply more of the same when it comes to complexity and risk? Um, much of what we're building... Um, it's sort of been done before and actually we've been quite blessed in that there's a huge amount of lessons coming out of Tideway, Crossrail, the Olympics and, and in fact and also of course a lot of the talent that worked in those projects you know I'm lucky enough for them those folks to work for me. I think the where the complexity comes and the risk comes on HS2 is just the sheer scale when I refer to all those constituencies we pass through the MPs all the local authorities um, just managing the logistics of that all the stakeholder management of course the sort of political risk and, and demands of that. And of course, HS2 is a huge draw on public funds. That in itself creates, rightly so, a level of public scrutiny through our six-month reports to Parliament and, and my own attendance at select committees. So, so you know, we're building on what's gone before. Uh, those projects are different. There's lots of good stuff coming from them. Uh, but the scale of what we're doing here, frankly, is, uh, is a little bit mind-boggling at times. <laughs> So it's holes, it's still holes, but it's just bigger holes. It's still concrete, but it's just lots more concrete. Yeah, and of course, come back to your question around inflation, when you sort of layer that onto the sort of the, the scale of what we're buying through our contractors, um, you, you just get a multiplier effect because of just the sheer volume. If you think that our civil engineering alone is sort of in the order of 16 billion, I think the original budget for Crossrail was 15.8. So, and that's before we've built the railway, put the trains on top and commissioned it into the four stations. So you get a sense of just the scale of what we're doing. But, you know, we're right in the peak now. This year, last year, next year are our peak window, and we're holding our own. We've got to say, got great momentum. Uh, And it's now sort of as we, the next couple of years, the big challenge for us is to make that transition from this being a civil engineering project to becoming a railway project. I mentioned the uh, London Olympics that you were involved with. I mean, most people that worked on that project, uh, you know, see it as a career highlight uh, in terms of you know changing the way that things were done and delivered, I mean, is that the case for you? What did you learn, you know, personally and professionally from that project? Oh yeah, it was it was um, at the time it was a career highlight for me. I mean, I think the fact that an Olympic Games only comes into a country it's almost if you're lucky once in a generation, and knowing that you've played a part in creating this sort of platform to host this games, you know, create you know for me and, and the thousands involved as you say, was, it was a hugely sort of proud moment. Lot, lots of um, learning coming out about how, you know, the role of the client, the way, the way that we use the delivery part, I was part of the delivery partner, 
Uh, I think the sort of attention to legacy and being as well as, as live to what you leave behind as it is what you're building. What about your approach to leadership on HS2? Yeah, I mean, I was blessed to, uh, you know, David Higgins, of course, was the chief exec of the, of the Olympic Delivery Authority, the client body. Uh, and of course, David was the chairman here at HS2 who hired me. And that's something I'll always be thankful for because this op- the, the opportunity to do this job uh, at this stage of my career has been profound on, on many levels. Um, and sort of seeing how David and John Armit, his chair, sort of led and sort of became the ambassadors for the project. Uh, and I've been... You know, lucky now we've got Sir John Thompson now appointed as my chair, something that we've been uh, needing for some time. And certainly John and I intend to, you know, work together and sort of create that sense of leadership, be that focal point in one direction for our staff and our our supply chain, but also for those stakeholders in one direction. But of course, in the other direction for, for politicians and ministers in Westminster. You know, HS2 as a project will, I think, frankly, always divide opinion until it's open. Uh, and we've got a role to play there. And I certainly would have seen that with... Uh, Sir David and Sir John at the time of the Olympics. Well, given the pressures that um, the CEO of HS2 must face each day, I mean, looking reasonably calm this afternoon. Um, but I mean, how do you stay focused and enthused, you know, during the difficult times? You know, what what do you do, Mark, to take your mind off of the project? Oh, I mean, outside of work, um, there's plenty to keep me busy with family. Uh, I still like to get my golf clubs out now and again and, and for my sins I'm a Chelsea supporter so there's plenty of things to make me just as miserable outside of work as there are inside of work particularly at the moment um, but uh, listen you know That's doing, fair this, enough, yeah. doing this job's a huge privilege and, and uh, you rightly say you know when when the pressure can come on top from time to times and it can make it tough but I've got a great team we've got a good board um, but the upsides and the good days far outweigh the bad ones. And when you see now, particularly, you know, for me, we're in the fun part where you see the bridges and structures coming out of the ground, when you see the tunnels being completed. I was on site earlier this week uh, looking at Long Itchington, its completed form. You know, when you see the careers we're shaping for young people joining our sector and the, their enthusiasm to be part of HS2 in the way you referred about the enthusiasm to be part of the Olympics. You know, we're seeing that with the workforce we've got here. Uh, and those are the days that really spur you on and they come thick and fast. So in that regard, I feel quite blessed. And it's going to be there for an awful long while. So sum it up for me. I mean, we heard what Jeremy Hunt's view was. Uh, are you an HS2 going to be the one that you know, that actually you know, proves that the sector can deliver vital, high-quality assets at pace and to schedule? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's our job. Uh, that's our endeavour every single day. Thousands of people you know, working hard to make this project a success. And, and we, we, we are aware that many people are watching us do that. We, there's lots of scrutiny. Uh, we're under the spotlight, but we're up for the challenge. And, uh, you know, I think we've got lots of things we can point to already where that's the case, but there's still a long way to go. Uh, but we have to hold our nerve, see this thing through, I'm absolutely convinced it will change the way we travel around our country and it will absolutely transform the way our economy works when you connect those major cities up. Let's hope so, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Infrastructure Podcast. I know you're hugely busy, uh, so thanks for sharing your thoughts today, Mark. You're welcome, Anthony. Thanks very much. That's all we've got time for today, but we have more from the Infrastructure Podcast in the pipeline and more guests to talk to as we continue to probe the big issues faced across the sector. If you haven't done so already, do check out the Infrastructure Podcast website. That's www.infrastructure.com 
podcast.com where you'll find background information and the latest podcasts to listen to and to share with all your friends. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Thanks again to Mark. I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Yeah.